Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Science, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at the PFL in Switzerland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Jack Price, the author of The Future of Brain Repair, a Realist's Guide to Stem Cell Therapy. A scientist assesses the potential of stem cell therapies for treating such brain disorders as stroke, Alzheimer's disease, and Parkinson's disease. Stem cell therapies are the subject of enormous hype, endowed by the media with almost magical qualities, and imagined by the public to bring about miracle cures. Stem cells have the potential to generate new cells of different types and have been shown to do so in certain cases. Could stem cell transplants repair the damaged brain? In this book, neurobiologist Jack Price assessed the potential of stem cell therapies to treat such brain disorders as stroke, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, spinal and spinal cord injuries. Certainly, brain disorders are in need of effective treatments. These disorders don't just kill, they disable unconventional drug therapies have not had much success in treating them. Price explains that repairing the human brain is difficult, largely because of its structural, functional, and developmental complexity. He examines the self-repairing capacity of blood and gut cells and the lack of such capacity in the brain describes the limitations of early brain stem cell therapies for neurodegenerative disorders, and discusses current clinical trials that may lead to the first licensed stem cell therapies for stroke, Parkinson's, and macular degeneration. And he describes the real promise of pluripotential stem cells, which can make all the cell types that constitute the body. New technologies, price reports, challenge the very notion of cell transplantation instead seeking to convince the brain itself to manufacture the new cells it needs. Could this be true future of brain repair? Okay, so it's my pleasure to welcome Jack Price today on our show. And welcome, Jack. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation. It's good to join you. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you. All right, so um, we're going to start by... Um, asking you, um, how has the pandemic influenced you and your work? Because as we're living through these unprecedented times. Uh, Well, obviously, research work has become incredibly difficult. So my colleagues um, at the Institute of Psychology and Neuroscience, which is um, uh, where I work, uh, our lab has been shut down a lot of the time, or at least uh, our occupancy has been reduced. So only maybe a half or a third the number of scientists could go in as normal. So that's been a real pain. Um, but there's been a real plus side to it, I have to say. I mean, it's it's slightly odd the way these things work out sometimes. I, I really discovered that um, 
a lot of neuroscience seminars are now hosted online. So whereas institutes used to organize their own seminars and lectures and keep them to themselves, they now share. And uh, it's terrific. You can sort of dial into seminars all over the world. I've, I've listened over the last few months to uh, lectures in Japan, in Switzerland, where you are, and uh, <laughs> in the United States, absolutely all over. So that's been an unexpected plus. So uh, there is a there is a plus side, I suppose, to this uh, otherwise pretty miserable situation. That's a great point, and also communication with the scientists yeah. that she would not uh, speak to, isn't it? That's absolutely right. I think it's also encouraged some of those of us who teach. Obviously, I'm a university teacher. Um, to think more creatively about our lectures. So, you know, the old-fashioned one-hour stand-up in front of the audience and talk <laughs> obviously hasn't been working lately, so we've had to think more creatively, and that's also been a positive. Can you give uh, any examples of how you adapted your lectures? Well, I mean, for example, we've been told by educationalists for years that after about eight or ten minutes of a sort of continuous talk by a lecturer, the students are already losing concentration. So, uh, so you know, breaking a lecture up into bite-sized pieces and sort of inters- interspersing those pieces with sort of questions and now tell me about this, think about this, you know, just breaking up the the, uh, the monotony of uh, listening to somebody just talk for an hour. That's been a real plus, I think. Perhaps interspersed with a TikTok dance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right, something yeah. like that, yeah. Quite That's a few great. lecturers now um, uh, uh, add music, so uh, that you know they they put a little pause of music in and ask the students to think or do something while the music plays. It's, uh, I have to say I haven't done that because um, I'm not sure the students that I teach would appreciate my choice of music. <laughs> But that's uh, I'm sure I'm sure your lectures are engaging enough to keep them focused. <laughs> well, I like to think so. <laughs> Excellent. All right. So can you tell us more about yourself, your background? Yes. Um, well, uh, I'm a developmental neurobiologist by training. So I, I trained first at the Open University here in the United Kingdom and then uh, uh, at University College where I worked with um, Professors Anne Mudge and Martin Raft, two outstanding uh, neuroscientists. So I was very lucky to work in that team. Um I suppose I then did postdoctoral training at MIT in Boston in the United States um, and then returned to the UK after that. Um, I mean, I've had a succession of positions since then. I mean, I've, I've been a professor, as I've said, at, at King's College at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology and Neuroscience for a, a good many years now. Um, but I, I suppose that the, the, the th- tasks I've undertaken, the jobs I've done that are most relevant to what we're going to talk about today um, are the roles that I've had. So I've, I've been very lucky in my career. I've, I've had roles around sort of stem cells, stem cell science, neuroscience repair, that kind of thing um, in academic, in commercial, and also in sort of regulatory settings. Um, so as I've said, I've been a professor at, at King's for, for quite a few years. That's a sort of an academic setting. And while I was in that setting, I've, uh, I, I helped design um, and create the, the, the cells that went into what turned out to be the first uh, stem cell therapy clinical trial for a, a neurological, for a brain disorder uh, in Europe. So that was the Pisces trial. Um I also uh, 
for a few years was uh, director of molecular neuroscience at Smith Klein Beecham, uh, which, as you know, well, it's now polyglaxo Smith Klein, but it's, it was a major uh, pharmaceutical company based here in the UK. Um, and for three years, I was uh, head of the Division of Advanced Therapies uh, at uh, the National Institute for Biological Standards of Control, which is part of the MHRA, so the medicines regulator here in the United Kingdom. So I very much saw um, medicines development and therapeutics from a sort of regulatory perspective. And while I was doing that job, I was also director of the United, uh, the United Kingdom Stem Cell Bank. So you may be aware that the UK, I think uniquely in the world, has a... Um, uh, a stem cell bank, which was authorised by Parliament. So it's actually s- set up uh, by the UK government, and, and I was director of that for several years. So I suppose um, I like to think that I've sort of seen stem cell science, I've seen stem cell therapeutics, cellular therapeutics, and advanced therapies generally in a, in a number, from a number of different perspectives. So that's me, I suppose. So, yeah, it looks like you tried your hand in the industry, (laughs) in academia, in the regulatory disciplines. So can you tell us why did you choose academia? Was that your initial um, sort of aspiration? uh, That was my sort of first love. And uh, and I've spent far more years in in academia than in, in any other environment. Uh, I mean, it's research, isn't it? I mean, you know, you're in research, you, you know exactly what I mean. There's nothing quite like the feeling of discovering something for the first time, you know, looking down a microscope and seeing something and realising you're the first person to really see that. Um, so nothing can substitute for that, I suspect. Um, so, yeah, so uh, academia is sort of my first love and that's where I've spent most of my time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, nothing compares to that feeling. But as we know, there are a lot of tribulations and uh, sort of trial and errors in, in, in academia. So do you Indeed. have any advice for our young uh, career, um, uh, early career young researchers? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, it's very difficult to give generic advice. I mean, I, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I've been a mentor in the academic environment and you know, giving advice to junior people coming through is very, very important. I'm slightly leery about giving generic advice because, to be perfectly honest, that, that certain people um, are clearly going to do well in academic neuroscience and, and, and just need to be encouraged to keep going. Others have to be encouraged to look for something else. I, I, I feel quite a few scientists keep going in an academic environment when it really is clear it's not for them. Um, you'll be aware that um, the sort of pyramid in in academic promotion with academia is is a very sort of sh- is a very sort of sharp pyramid. It, it, you know that the, there's there are jobs in sort of senior academic posts probably for less than ten percent of the people who come through with PhDs, um, and there are lots of other great jobs out there. Like I say, I've worked in a regulatory setting, commercial settings. There's some very rewarding and and very um, interesting careers out there um so i you know i I think it's it's important to if you're really sure you want to be an academic sure you've got to go for it and work hard at it and and hopefully it'll come right but um it's important not to be blinded by other opportunities that might come your way that's great advice and really appreciate your honesty (laughs) (laughs) 
Okay, so uh, just before we start, so you are a developmental neurobiologist. Yeah. Can we, if from the beginning, just define what what difference is, uh, what, uh, how different is developmental neurobiologist from neurodegenerative disease uh, biologist? Because these two sound very similar, but at times you have to make that distinction. Yes. Well, I suppose you could argue that uh, they're at opposite ends of the... Uh of the neuroscience spectrum in, ter- in, 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 sort of ty- in terms of time. I mean, mm-hmm. developmental neurobiology um, obviously tends to concentrate on how uh, the nervous system develops, starting you know, in the embryo and through the fetus and into early life. Whereas neurodegeneration, I mean, not exclusively, of course, there are neurodegenerative disorders that start in childhood, um, Batten's disease and others like it. But neurodegeneration, Mostly, I suppose, would be considered to be uh, that set of diseases suffered by the by the elderly. So, you know, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's disease, disorders of that kind. So, the the pathology um, of of those disorders is really quite distinct in lots of different ways from um, from the processes that that govern development. That said. Um, Molecular and cellular mechanisms tend to be common right across uh, all biological processes. So quite often we find ourselves um, studying the same the same processes, albeit with a different sort of bias. Um, so uh, I'm trying to think of a, a very specific example, but um, uh, I mean, you, you told me earlier that you're you're working on tau. Well, tau is obviously pivotal in Alzheimer's disease. At least that's what we that's what we think. But tau is a, a really significant protein in, in the development of, of axonal connections. So, you know, one mm-hmm. of the major proteins involved in extending an axon for a, a baby neuron is is the tau gene, tau protein. So um, quite often we end up studying the same things in a, in a different context, I suppose. Yes, exactly. And tau is also involved in cell division, which is... Indeed. One of the- yeah, and nothing's more important than cell division in, during development, of course. Yeah. So now, as we as we jump in uh, uh, to discuss your book, uh, which yeah. is the future of brain repair, so does it, it actually starts to bring these two ends of the spectrum slightly together? Doesn't it? Well, they do, um, and actually, that it, it's if I might be permitted a little anecdote that the, the reason why I got into this area of research uh, was because uh, uh, there was a developmental explanation for how stem cells might work in bringing about uh, brain repair. Um, And frankly, as a developmental biologist, I just didn't believe it. (laughs) Um, So the idea was that if you put stem cells and transplanted them into a damaged brain where where nerve cells had been lost through disease or through through uh, uh, injury, um, the idea was that the um, the stem cells would replace the lost lost nerve cells. Um, that was the original hypothesis. But as somebody who'd been studying uh, the development of nerve cells uh, and uh, you know had some understanding of, of the mechanisms that drove fate determination during brain development in other words drove developing cells to take on different neuronal identities um, 
I, I just couldn't imagine that, that uh, engrafted stem cells would have the information they needed to make the correct decisions to replace missing cells. And so I, I got into this yeah. because, um, as I said, I didn't believe it. And then a, an old colleague of mine, a, a, a chap by the name of Jeffrey Gray, now, now sadly deceased, who was professor of psychology at the Institute of, of Psychiatry, when he and I met up and I said, I don't believe it could possibly work, he said, oh, well, you're wrong because I've shown it does. <laughs> and then he described to me a series of experiments in which he'd shown categorically that if you injected stem cells into the brain of a, an experimental animal that had suffered brain damage, then sure enough, the animal got better. So functionally, it showed recovery. And it was the fact that I, I couldn't imagine how that could possibly happen that, that sort of got me into, into this area of research. Was there a specific brain region that these were injected into? Yes. Well, he started working on the hippocampus. And as you know from a, a, somebody studying neurodegeneration, the hippocampus has been the focus of a lot of attention from mm. neuroscientists. Uh, the development of the hippocampus is interesting, but uh, the role it plays uh, in, for example, memory formation, in uh, the control of affect, so the control of emotions, Um and uh, in neurodegeneration, because it's it's a it's a pivotal site of of cell loss, particularly in the development of Alzheimer's disease, and as as I said, has has attracted a lot of attention in that that uh, regard. So what Jeffrey and his colleagues showed, and I'm obviously going back a long time now. This is sort of twenty years ago, was that if you, if you injected stem cells into an animal that had a damaged hippocampus. Uh, then sure enough, uh, they recovered. And, and you could show that by showing that the, the memory loss that they otherwise had um, uh, sort of improved following the engraftment of stem cells. So, um, yes. It was, was this engraftment uh, without any other cofactors uh, or some signaling molecules? It was. Yeah, mm. absolutely it was. Um, and... We thought at the time, and we had some evidence that it was it was indeed because of cell replacement. Uh, you know that the stem cells were turning into the hippocampal neurons that had been lost because of the injury. Um, but we subsequently discovered that it was something else was going on, um, and that led us and and several others working in the same field at the same time uh, to identify what we now tend to call the bystander effect. And that was this very strange phenomenon that we still don't really understand, uh, by which um, when you engraft stem cells into a damaged brain, they seem to uh, do something other than cell replacement. They seem able to encourage the damaged brain to repair itself. Um, and several things happen uh, following the engraftment of, the, of these, these cells. Um, uh, the, the cell, uh, the brain starts to build new vasculature. It uh, encourages its own immune system to get more involved in the brain repair, and that, and that has positive effects. Um, it encourages plasticity amongst the host stem cells, so that the brain's own stem cells become activated and make more neurons. Quite a few things happen, and and it turns out that. Thinking about stem cells just in terms of what they could give rise to. So, in other words, thinking about them in terms of 
the other types of cells they could produce, was missing something very, very important about stem cells, namely that they're actually just very sensitive cells. They're very, the cells are very sensitive to their environment, and they respond to their environment. And uh, where they sort of sense damage, where they sense cell loss, they do a number of things to bring about sort of functional improvement. And that's been one of the great discoveries, I think, from, uh, from I mean, not only our work, of course, lo- lots of labs have discovered this. And it's been one of the really pivotal um, findings that emerged, uh, that has emerged from stem cell research in the last uh, couple of decades. So how do these uh, brain stem cells uh, differ from other types of uh, stem cells in the body? Well, that's a very good question. And and to be honest, we're not entirely clear uh, still about that. Um, I mean, it, the, the, the trivial answer is, is that they, they make brain cells, uh, whereas other types of stem cells make other types of cells. So, for example, um, you, you'll be aware that in, in your bone marrow, uh, you have a population of stem cells that make blood cells. Uh, and you're absolutely dependent on that population of bone marrow cells to keep you uh, replenished with red cells and uh, lymphocytes and macrophages and all the other uh, white blood cells that, that make up uh, normal blood complement. Um, so, you know, that's the difference between those cells. But more importantly, of course, is what's the molecular difference between different types of stem cells uh, that make them attuned to uh, the different settings they lie in. Uh, we don't really know the full answer to that, although in the end, of course, it's, it's, it's the, the, cell, the, the genes that those different stem cell types express and, and the behaviours those genes uh, uh, push the cells towards. But it also, also depends on something we, 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 we're now very interested in in stem cell science, what we call the stem cell niche. So the niche, mm. the, 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 the site where the stem cells live, where they find themselves, um, is really important. And the cells interact with the other factors in that niche. So the other cells and the extracellular matrix and so on and so forth that make up the niche. Um, and it's together with the, with the niche that they find themselves in that the cells uh, uh, adopt the behaviors they adopt. So it's, it's, it's a very elegant piece of, of biology, uh, the, the stem cell niche and how it behaves. So does this niche environment have, have to be healthy for stem cells to develop correctly? Uh, well, that's, that's certainly true. I mean, as you would imagine, like, like, like all uh, biology, it's easily disrupted and things can go wrong. And, and if it's mm. not working properly, that, that's the case. But of course, in a sense, it, it really comes into its own when things aren't quite optimal. So, you know, in the bone marrow niche, for example, which, which as I say, we now understand pretty well. People have, uh, sort of hematologists and immunologists have been working on it for many, many years. And w- one of the things we now realize is, is that it's, it's very sensitive to things going wrong. So, you know, if you have a bleed uh, and you lose blood, uh, the stem cell niche quickly senses that and turns mm. on uh, the production of more blood cells to replace the ones you've lost. So therefore you can, you know, rest easy going and donating a pint of or a half a litre of blood every every whatever three or six months if you're a blood donor, confident that your bone marrow will respond and replace it very, very quickly. So that they, they're very much sensitive to things not being quite as they should be and react accordingly. 
Okay, so um, let's take perhaps maybe a more specific example. So yeah. say you, or we have a neurodegeneration in hippocampus due to yeah. AD, yeah. so in a person. Yeah. So uh, the suggestion would be to take cell, stem cells from outside and inject them into the into into this area, right? Yep. And people are doing that. Mm -hmm. uh, so in experimental animals, there is some evidence that that approach works. Uh, whether it will be viable in patients, I, I don't think is entirely clear yet. Um, I think it's fair to say that Alzheimer's disease is uh, one of the less well-developed uh, stem cell therapeutic approaches at this time. There are other diseases where um, approaches have developed much further, um, which isn't to say that Alzheimer's won't eventually be uh, be amenable to this kind of treatment, but, but currently it's not quite there. I think the the problem generally with Alzheimer's is, or, or rather, there are the two problems that are generally the case. Um, the one is that it's it's um, it's it, it's a very widely uh, effective neurodegeneration. If that isn't a strange way of putting it, in other words, uh, brain cells are lost uh, more or less all over the brain. Uh, so you mentioned the hippocampus, and that's one of the sites where it seems to get started. But eventually, uh, and quite quickly, uh, within a few years, the brain cells have lost really all over the cerebral cortex and elsewhere. So that makes it a challenge. It's almost certainly not going to be sufficient to uh, replace brain cells in just one region. Somehow you'd have to induce you know, the entire brain to replace itself. And, and that's an enormous challenge. And then the other problem, and, and, and there are several neurodegenerative disorders where this is the case. The second problem um, is that by the time uh, uh, the disease is, is really noticeable, by the time there's a clear clinical evidence of onset of dementia, uh, the disease has already progressed really quite a long way. This is a similar problem in, in Parkinson's disease. It's been estimated that the vast majority of, of, of um, the dopaminergic neurons, which seem to be really pivotal in Parkinson's disease, by the time the person presents with symptoms, probably the majority of those dopaminergic neurons have already been lost. Uh, so you can imagine that that really makes it really quite a challenge. Yes, uh, but there, there is also um, a trial going on in uh, Japan at the moment uh, in uh, injecting the IPSC yes. drive neurons. Yes. So really interested to see how that, that runs up. Yes, absolutely. No, no, absolutely. There are, there, there are as I've said, there is um, data in experimental mm. animals, and that's led, as you've said, to uh, to clinical trials. Um, and iPS cells, uh, um, all our audience might not know what they are, but but uh, the, these uh, uh, really uh, supremely flexible stem cells um, are really the the the, uh, the 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 source of choice now for for starting a therapeutic approach like this. And uh, absolutely, Alzheimer's disease is certainly going to be a, a potential target. So, do these injected stem cells uh, have potential to turn into? all sorts of neuronal cell types like the uh, oligodendrocytes or neurons are predominant uh, type? Well, um, before I answer that, let me try and make an important distinction. So in some 
therapeutic approaches, it's actually the stem cells themselves that are injected. Um, the, the, the trial that I, I've been involved in over, over a number of years for stroke, that was the case. Uh, but we just mentioned uh, iPS cells, which is, as you know, is, is, is one type of pluripotent cell. Um, when uh, a, a therapeutic is being derived using those cells, it's not the stem cells themselves that are injected mm-hmm. in the brain. That, they, they, that wouldn't be safe um, for a variety of reasons we can perhaps talk about. But rather, uh, the cells are turned into brain cells first. And it's the brain cells, that the sort of fairly immature uh, brain cells that are injected rather than the stem cells. Um, so uh, so in, in, a, in a number of disorders now, uh, these iPS cells or, or embryonic stem cells, which is another variety of pluripotent cells, are differentiated into a particular type of brain cell type, the type that seems to be most important in that particular disease. And it's those uh, brain cell types that are injected into, uh, into the brain. So probably the best examples of that uh, the probably the most the two most advanced examples of that currently would be Parkinson's disease, um, and then uh, a disease of the eye, so macular degeneration, age related macular degeneration. Um, so in Parkinson's disease, uh, it's the loss of the dopaminergic neurons, as I've already mentioned, uh, that project to the forebrain. It's the loss of those cells um, that really has, has the the, the the, the really big impact on uh, a mobility, on, on the ability of a patient to initiate movement. Um, and in the, in the case of the macular degeneration, it's the photoreceptors, the loss of photoreceptors that's most pivotal. Um, and there what's injected is a, is a cell type called the, uh, the pigment epithelium. Uh, for wreaths that we can perhaps go into um, they play a support role, and it turns out they're the most important cell type there. So in each case, then, the, the, the iPS cells are being used to make the therapeutically most appropriate cell type, and it's that that's injected into the brain. So as you mentioned, the macular degeneration research is uh, really getting advanced now, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's the most, uh, the most exciting. Mm. Well, as I say, that and Parkinson's disease are probably the most advanced at this present time. Uh, very exciting developments in, in that field. Yeah. Are there other systemic um, uh, circuitry, so peripheral uh, neuros, uh, nervous system diseases that can be also targeted using stem cells? Uh, there, there are. So, uh, Again, there's well, there's there's a number of different uh, disorders that are being addressed. Uh, one of the things that's been looked at um, is actual peripheral nerve injury. Um, so it, it's been known for quite a long while that if you can uh, provide an appropriate substrate, then um, nerve cells will regrow. Uh, their connections. So where where um, there's been an injury, for example, in 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 a peripheral nerve or in a projection uh, from the spinal cord, um, if you can uh, put an appropriate pathway for the for the newly growing axons to grow along, um, then there's evidence that you can you can uh, reconnect uh, those those nerve fibers um, and stem cells uh, or stem cell derivatives. Um, uh, are thought to 
possibly play a role in that. So there are a number of investigators now now looking at that. Um, one of the more intriguing uh, avenues that are being considered now is is a disorder called Hirschsprung's disease. Um, and that's this horrible congenital situation where children are born essentially without a, a, an enteric nervous system. So um, the, the enteric nervous system is the intrinsic nerve cells that occupy the gut. And gut <laughs> motility and a lot of uh, uh, activity in the gut is controlled by these enteric neurons that, that uh, surround the, the gut wall. Um, and these children who are, who are born with this Hirschsprung's disease simply don't have any of those nerve cells. So some investigators now are starting to try and think if they could replace those, and that would make an enormous impact on um, on the lives of those children. Um, so that's, that's an area to, to keep an eye on. Really interesting. A lot of developments. <laughs> yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, what, uh, with the uh, with regards to uh, central nervous system uh, stem cell therapy, uh, yeah. does it have to be combined with activity-based repair? So, for example, the brain circuits that are being used more, do they need to be used more to get repaired? Uh, that's a good question. My, uh, there's no definitive answer to that yet. Um, uh, in, in experimental animals, uh, there is evidence that that's the case. We, we don't know in patients, but I have to say I'd be very surprised if that wasn't true because uh, we know that, that um, uh, encouraging patients, say following a stroke, for example, would probably be the best example, encouraging patients in the, in, in, in the use of the, uh, the limb or whatever it is that, 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 that the, the strokes really affected um, can bring about recovery, can aid recovery. And I'd be very surprised if there wasn't a synergy between that and a cell therapy uh, cell, cell therapy approach. Um, but uh, I, as far as I know, there's no evidence for that in patients at the present time. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of anecdotal uh, stuff around patients. I mean, one of the big problems, maybe we want to talk about this, is um, that, that at the present moment, there are no actual licensed therapies uh, for neurodegenerative or, or any, in fact, any CNS uh, disorder. Um, but that doesn't mean that patients aren't being injected with cells um, because there, there are a number of clinics and practitioners out there who, in a fairly unprincipled kind of way and in my opinion highly unethical way injecting patients with cells um, and this is this is a, a, a worldwide problem really because a lot of patients are being um, encouraged to try these unlicensed therapies and, and don't realize that they're uh, putting themselves in considerable danger uh, in doing so that's right. It's really worrying. It has mm. the uh, um, the whole field has so much potential, um, but it needs to be regulated. Absolutely, yes, yes, absolutely. And and uh, I mean, I think you know, in, you and I are both in Europe. I think regulators here have, have by and large, done a pretty good job of managing to uh, restrict that kind of uh, that kind of activity. Um, in other countries, though, I suppose most notably the US, where sort of direct-to-consumer healthcare is much more prominent and where um, uh, patients uh, quite often would look on the internet and find a clinic offering something and go directly to those clinics uh, 
um, and get sold for tens of thousands of dollars, get sold to cellular therapy uh, without necessarily realizing that, that it isn't a licensed therapy. Uh, that's much more of a problem. And, and uh, I know the Food and Drug Administration in the United States is desperately trying to um, bear down on these these uh, sort of cowboy organizations, um, but only with a certain degree of success at this stage. Hmm. Yeah, so perhaps we can discuss the risks involved yes. in uh, these therapies. What would be the major measurements um, you could uh, um, well, bring the architecture? Uh, uh, I think at this stage, um, I mean, with any new therapy, the, 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 the two risks, the one is there's no efficacy. In other words, they don't work. Um, and the second is uh, that they're not safe. Um, regulators, needless to say, are, are particularly keen on safety. Uh, they want to be absolutely sure that, that um, uh, there's no risks to the patients. And uh, with cell therapies, there are obvious risks straight off. I mean, one of the things that's, that's been re- recognized in stem cell science for a long time is that um, if you take a cell, a stem cell, from where it would normally reside, and we talked, didn't we, a moment ago about the stem cell niche, if you take mm. a cell from its stem cell niche and put it somewhere else, then its behavior is going to change. And these are cells that have the potential to expand and generate other cells. And so that the chance of them forming some kind of a tumor um, is really quite is really quite serious. Now, uh, I think we can be fairly sure that before any therapy gets uh, a license and, 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 and becomes a, 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 a properly available therapy, that potential will have been looked at very, very carefully. But amongst the unlicensed therapies, there's been several examples where people have had stem cells injected into their spinal cord, for example, and subsequently come away with a growth on their spinal cord, um, which has been very, very serious. So there are, there are certainly examples of that. Um, the, the, one of the problems is that stem cells, or, or in fact, just cellular therapies, so wh- whatever the source of the cells, um, are uh, very, very difficult to produce consistently. So if you compare them to sort of more traditional medicines, uh, they are relatively easy to produce in a uh, in a reproducible and secure fashion. Now, I say relatively easy. They're only easy because drug companies have been doing it for decades and they know exactly what they're doing. But once a, 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 a compound has been shown to be active, then companies quite quickly work out how to generate uh, tablets or medicines uh, reproducibly, all of which are the same and all of which have, you can be sure, you know, each packet of drugs is the same as the previous one. In cell therapies, that's a challenge for the obvious reason that these are living cells and they change. Uh, so one of the things that we, we've discovered in recent years is that as you grow cells in culture and as you manufacture them, they start to accumulate mutations. Uh, so cells, just as, as we're all aware, st- cells mutate uh, just as they grow. It's just a, a risk uh, that, that's intrinsic to uh, cell division. Um, so as, as, as cells grow, some of them will actually acquire mutations. And of course, this is one of the causes, probably the major cause of cancer. So 
uh, a cancer when it occurs in, in in any patient is is the result of cells having divided and having accumulated mutations, and those having led to this tumorous growth. So, one of the big problems facing cell manufacture for cell therapy currently is how to um, expand cells. So, obviously, you need millions, billions of cells if you're going to treat a population, a large population of patients. How to achieve that without ending up with cells that are mutated and are tumorigenic? Um, so, the manufacturers who are currently working on this are putting a lot of effort into in trying to resolve that particular problem. Um, yeah, so I'm really glad that you brought uh, this point up, uh, that uh, homogenous uh, cell cultures are really hard to produce. It's hard to verify using micro- markers that you've got the homogenous uh, cultures. So I really appreciate also in the book that you stay quite realistic about um, where we are technology-wise. Yeah. So what do, you, what do you think we need to do to improve our tools and verification to be able to produce such a huge amount of cells that can be useful? Um, well, I, I, I don't think there's one big thing. I think, I think there are a number of, of, uh, of different things that could be done. And, and, and you know, people who work on, on these kind of biological medicines, because, I mean, some of the problems that we're uh, suffering with cell therapies – People who've produced vaccines, people who've produced antibody therapies have, have had to face these kind of problems in, in the past. So some of them aren't entirely new. Um, and, and, and my inclination is rather than being, you know, a big thing that has to be put right, it's it's a thousand and one little things, little improvements, working out how to detect when mutations have arisen in your culture, working out how to get the culture conditions absolutely optimum, such that the mutations aren't encouraged, at least. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of relatively small um, uh, uh, additional technologies that, that will just improve the, your ability to produce a consistent product. Um, that seems to be the, the, the real thing. Um, but, you know, there are, as we're both aware, biology moves forward and currently moves forward, molecular biology, at an absolutely incredible pace. Uh, the new technologies that emerge is, uh, are just stunning. Uh, one of the things that's really uh, impacted enormously is, is what we call single-cell transcriptomics. You know, the ability to look at individual cells, so just a single cell, and assess precisely what, it's, what genes it's expressing um, uh, and how it's behaving as a consequence. Um, and that technology, I think, is going to get applied increasingly to uh, cell therapies in a way of, of identifying how many, asking the question, how many different cell types have I got in this culture? And is that, uh, uh, is that population changing with time? And which are the cell types I really want in there? And which are the cell types I really don't want in there that I really have to clear out of the culture? So I, I think that's a, a, a really exciting development. And, you know, molecular biology is coming up with that and many more. And I'm sure there's exciting things down, down the track. Perhaps I should say, uh, 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 Galina, that um, where we currently are, I, I would say that there, uh, there, there are sort of two types of 
major types of therapies coming through. I, I, I've already mentioned that the unlicensed therapies, which I'm keen to see the back of. Uh, in the book, I talk mm. about them as feral therapies. That's the way I think about them. They're sort of, you know, wild things on the edge of, <laughs> on the edge of mm-hmm. science that we really need to try and get rid of. Um, but a, amongst the therapies that are currently going through clinical trials, so legitimate therapies that are seeking uh, a, a regulatory approval, there are sort of two major groups, that, uh, and we've sort of alluded to them a, a little bit already, but but just to spell it out, there are the ones that I think of as being sort of legacy therapies. So you'll, you'll be aware, and, and all our listeners will be aware, that, that developing a successful medicine is a very long process. So the, mm. there, there are therapies going through clinical trials now that started on clinical trials, and which uh, the original discoveries for those clinical trials go back 10, sometimes 20 years. I mean, the, the cells that, that I was responsible for, for generating that went into clinical trial, we um, first developed, I think, about 2005. They first went into patients in 2011, right? But we're still in clinical trial with those cells. So, so those are what I kind of think of as, as sort of legacy technologies because they're, they're technologies that we derived towards the end of the last century and the early years of this century. So, you know, they are not now the leading technologies. But but because of simply the length of time it takes, those are the technologies that are still working their way through the regulatory process. And we hope we'll we'll get, um, you know, uh, license approval in, in the next few years. So the first stem cell therapies for brain disorders to get licensed will probably come from those legacy technologies. But on their heels are, are the sort of what we could perhaps call the leading edge technologies, and they're the, some of the things we've been talking about. So we talked a little bit about Parkinson's disease, didn't we, and, and about macular degeneration. And they're using uh, these pluripotent cells, which are cells that we've really only had uh, in the laboratory for the last decade or two, and only really in the last few years have we learned how to make products from them that are potentially of use in a, in a, in a therapeutic setting. And so those cell therapies are at a much earlier stage. So the ones in Parkinson's disease, in in, um, in macular de- degeneration, are really only in phase one or phase one, two trials. So at a much earlier stage. So they've still got some years to go. So they're more promising in the sense that the, the technology underpinning them is much more elegant um, and much more, probably more secure, uh, but they're a little bit further back. So we're looking at this this whole different scope of cell therapies working their working their way through, um, and then of course on top of that there there are, there are sort of really um, state of the art therapies where the technology has really only emerged in the last year or two, and, and they're still in in preclinical study for the most most part, but other technologies also starting to find their way into uh, into the very early stage clinical trials. Yes, great point. The complexity should never be underestimated uh, with anything coming with the the, the cell, starting even from the single cell cultures like HEC293, which have tetraploid and a half genomes. Yeah, there's also transcriptomic technologies. Yes. uh, All come really handy. Yes. So let's think a little bit more than towards the future about the ideal world. (laughs) <laughs> so say in about 50 years, I noticed that my memory is starting to get really, really bad. And I go to the clinic and they say that uh, 
part of my hippocampus started degenerating. So how, in the scenario, do you see this uh, stem cell therapies being applied? Well, um, uh, I, so <laughs> the only honest answer is I don't know. <laughs> um, but uh, le- let me, if I may, let me alter you, offer you two alternatives. So when you reach my age and your memory starts to fade, uh, my guess is that, that um, stem cell therapy actually by that stage might have been superseded uh, by a couple of other possibilities. So let me let me offer you two that, that might have happened by then that you can look forward to. Um, so um, one of them is uh, what we might call, what's typically called direct reprogramming. So we, we haven't talked in detail about, we've mentioned iPS cells, but we haven't really talked in detail about how they're generated. And, and obviously I don't want to dive too deeply into the molecular biology of that. But but uh, what, what happens in, in iPS cells is that regular, ordinary somatic cells, like, for example, skin cells or blood cells, are what we call reprogrammed. They're turned into stem cells. And we know how to do that by, by um, transiently expressing stem cell genes in these, in these somatic cells, in these fibroblasts or these skin cells, whatever. Um, and then we can turn them into stem cells. And that's a really dramatic uh, piece of, of technology that was originally uh, discovered by Shinya Yamanaka in, in, in 2006. A uh, great breakthrough in science. So that's making the iPS cells that, as we've just discussed, are now going into cell therapies. But um, it's given rise uh, to another line of endeavor, and, and that's this thing we call direct reprogramming. And the idea then is instead of taking, say, a skin cell and reprogramming it to make a stem cell, what you can do is take a skin cell but reprogram it directly to make a nerve cell. Okay, so skip the stem cell step, go straight from one cell type directly into another. And remarkably, that works. And that's now being done in lots of laboratories worldwide. It's become a sort of standard technology. But here's the thing. There's no reason, given the way the technology works, there's no a priori reason why you couldn't do that directly in a person's brain. So the idea would then be that instead of injecting stem cells into your hippocampus because your memory's failing, what could be done, theoretically, would be inject the, the vector carrying the reprogramming factors into your hippocampus. And we know from experiments from people like Magdalena Goertz in Munich and, and various other researchers that if you do that, if you get the conditions right, it's, it's not a trivial experiment, but if you do that, you can actually get non-brain cells or at least non-neuronal cells in the brain to turn into nerve cells, to turn into neurons that actually will then genuinely replace the, the, the nerve cells that you've lost. So in other words, you could do the whole thing inside your own brain without actually introducing any new cells, any foreign cells at all. So th- th- this is very exciting technology, and and people are, are working now on on working out precisely how you make the the the, the cells uh, that you generate um, 
into turn into exactly the right cell type because obviously any old cell won't do. You have to make the cells uh, turn into exactly the right cell type, the cell type you're, you're looking to replace. And that technology is, is really def- developing really fast. So one alternative, I suspect, uh, you know, in the next decades will be that, that people will devise these, what will effectively be gene therapy vectors that will bring about a direct reprogramming, the direct generation of missing brain cells um, in your own head. Um, so that's one possibility. Um, a second possibility, and, and again, I'm pretty enthusiastic about this, is I mentioned earlier the bystander effect. So I mentioned that that uh, when you engraft stem cells into the damaged brain, they seem able to recruit the brain uh, to help mend itself. So rather than the stem cells replacing brain tissue, they sort of encourage the host brain, the damaged brain, to repair itself. Now, that's intriguing. And it begs the question then, well, what is it the stem cells are producing? What are they secreting? What are they doing that's encouraging the brain to behave in that way, that's encouraging that endogenous repair? And uh, progress is being made on that. We now think we understand some of the factors uh, that are being released by the stem cells that are bringing about this effect. If, if that works out, then instead of injecting stem cells, we can perhaps produce a therapeutic that isn't actually a stem cell. It's more in a sense like a sort of conventional vaccine or a conventional biological um, that would itself bring about the, the repair effect. And so that's a, an avenue of, of research that's also being uh, pursued really quite quite avidly. Um, it's uh, in the context we started off, didn't we, talking about COVID and and and, and the situation mm. we're currently in. You'll be aware that uh, at least one of the that the Pfizer vaccine that's currently uh, uh, being being used um, uh, is a, is basically a, an RNA encapsulated RNA. Uh, um, uh, message or messenger RNA uh, structure um, mm-hmm. uh, that brings about that acts as a vaccine. Well, one could imagine a situation where you actually introduced an RNA, okay, uh, that would go into in, in a form like a uh, that would go into a cell or to a brain cell and get the brain cell to produce a, a protein or, or a, a, another factor of some kind um, that would elicit this kind of repair that, that would talk the brain cells into into uh, preparing themselves so that that's i mean that's not there yet so you know you're gonna have to wait a little while for that but uh, it seems to me quite plausible that, that that's a, a technology that could that could work into the future interesting and do either of these approaches um incorporate enhancing neurogenesis in the brain yeah uh, that's a, that's another approach. So that that's not specifically uh, well. That's that's not a cell therapy. But you're quite right. I mean, uh, there's a lot of work being done, as you'll be aware, um, on encouraging neurogenesis within the hippocampus. So we probably should explain to our listeners that the hippocampus is possibly the only area in uh, the human brain. Uh, other vertebrates have, have other areas, but the human brain uh, possibly only has one area where there are true endogenous stem cells. So stem cells that are actually 
in a normal adult are actually generating brain cells, a continuous process. And we know that those cells in the hippocampus are really, really important for mood and for memory. So there's quite a lot of evidence that in chronically depressed uh, individuals, and also, as we mentioned earlier, in in sufferers of, of dementia, Alzheimer's patients, there is a loss of that neurogenesis so that, that those endogenous stem cells simply stop or reduce the number of, of, of nerve cells they make. And actually, we know that that happens just with aging anyway. As you get older, that, that neurogenesis tends to fall away. So if we could come up with a therapy that would encourage that endogenous stem cell uh, neurogenesis, uh, that would also be a potential therapeutic. And, and um there's been quite a lot of research by uh, different drug companies trying to come with def- different therapeutics that could encourage that effect. Excellent. I think I will subscribe to one of these alternative features. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, one of the scary things about cell therapy is what you have to go through to have it. So you 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 know you 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 get wheeled into a, a an operating theatre. You get a hole drilled in your head and somebody shoves a needle in and squirts in stem cells it's it's um, mm. <laughs> it works but it's not to say it isn't fractionally scary actually just to say okay. I, if i may uh, one of the other things you, you're asking me how, how things are going to develop how technologies are going to develop in the future one thing that's already happening is that the delivery of stem cells, the delivery of cell therapies is becoming much more sophisticated. So we, we were talking very briefly, weren't we, about macular degeneration. And mm. there I, I said that um, it's these retinal pigment epithelial cells which get injected and they have to be put be- behind the retina in the eye, which is where the, 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 the pathology lies, uh, and, and replace the, the, the missing retinal pigment epithelial but but the best examples of that now rather than than the surgeon just injecting a sort of slurry of stem cells into this into this space into this virtual space what they now do and and what technologists have developed is a patch so what they actually inject isn't isn't just cells it's a it's a patch it's it's a it's a it's a it's a piece of of artificial membrane on which the retinal pigment epithelial, epithelial cells, these important retinal cells, have been grown as a very specific layer. So it, it's oh, sort wow. of like sticking this patch in behind the damaged retina and, and where it, it, it sort of immediately lies as, a, as an intact structure rather than just a, you know cells swimming around. Um, and it's quite clear that that has a much improved therapeutic effect. And I suspect this is another development that's going to, that's going to increase in, in the future, that the, the, the way we've done it in the past, where, as I say, you just inject a, a sort of an aqueous slurry of cells. That's, that's, uh, I mean, could you imagine a, a more primitive <laughs> way of introducing <laughs> cellular material into something as complex and as delicate as the brain than just you know squirting cells in in a <laughs> aqueous suspension yeah perhaps all of these legacy technologies they're going to serve their time and to then yeah, manage absolutely yeah we can do better we will do better excellent so that's a really fascinating topic and uh, yeah and uh, just so much to be hopeful yeah, um, about for the yeah. future Okay, so we've taken a lot of your time today. <laughs> so I would like to ask, what are you currently working on? Uh, well, I'm working on another book. Um, I, I've, the, my other big interest uh, in recent years has been uh, autism, and, and particularly in the context of, of neurotypical versus alternative behaviours. Um, 
so, I mean, just to go backwards, the, the reason why I wrote the book we've been discussing about brain repair was when I, I was very conscious that there's a huge amount of hype around stem cells and the, and, and the potential for brain repair. Um, mm. And and I my, my sense is that, that too many p- people believe the hype and believe the nonsense because they don't really understand the biology. And the biology can be immensely challenging, but at the same time, in, in some ways, it's, it's, it can be quite simple. Some of the concepts are really not that difficult. And, and I wrote the book we've been discussing in an attempt to try and explain you know, why the brain uh, doesn't repair itself, why it needs help, what kind of helps might work, and, and how we might go about delivering them. So autism and, and, and uh, the divergence of, of sort of autistic individuals, individuals with autism from what we might call neurotypicality is another process that, that uh, we're starting to understand the biology of. So, so it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, something happens in utero that diverts that, that baby into a, into a different trajectory. Um, and We've certainly not cracked it by any means. We're, we're by no means fully understanding what's going on. But we've got really quite a grasp of some of the elements of it. And so uh, I'm currently working on a book trying to explain the neurodevelopmental aspects of, of autism. And I hope um, I hope people will find that of interest also. Oh, for sure. That That's amazing. I'm really hoping you're going to come uh, uh, here to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I'd love to. I've got to finish it first, but I would love to talk to you about it in the future. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, where can our listeners find more information about the book and also your work? Uh, well, uh, if you go to – my book's published by MIT Press, uh, and the MIT Press uh, uh, website, uh, uh, you'll find it on there. Uh, you can buy it for any good booksellers. Uh, so you'd find it at Waterstones. You'll find it at uh, um, uh, Amazon. Uh, it's, it's available. Um, if you Google me, you'll find me and, and my website. And I talk a bit more on my King's College London website about other things I do. I also have a blog. Um, so uh, I have a blog on the psychology today. Uh, webpage. Uh, and in fact, I posted a blog just on Friday. So again, uh, you'll find uh, it, more information on some of the things we've talked about today um, and quite a lot about uh, the autism that, I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm working on currently. Uh, you'll find quite a lot on, uh, in, in, on that blog site. So uh, those are places people can go if they want to know a little bit more. Excellent. Okay, so thank you so much for coming here today. I learned a lot, and I'm sure that our listeners are going to find uh, your book completely <laughs> exhilarating, to be honest. <laughs> well, I hope so, and thank you very much for the invitation. I've really enjoyed it. It's been fun talking. Okay, take care. Yeah, you too.